You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. All right, so we've been working through the book of Habakkuk for a few weeks now, and um, before getting into this book, I was talking with Pastor Walter and Pastor Brian about this upcoming sermon series, and they were like, why don't you read ahead, look and see if there's a passage that sticks out to you, and we'll give you the opportunity to preach. And so I was reading through chapter two, and it just really hit me. And I think we can sum up all of the book of Habakkuk as the prophet being in a season of waiting. Like he can see things going on in the world around him. He can see that there is wickedness that seems to be uh, really winning out in the world. And he's confused and he's crying out to God saying, God, I don't understand. I know who you are. I know your character, but I don't understand. And so what we find here in the first part of chapter 2 is Habakkuk is in a season of waiting. And I know if I were to go around the room and ask each of you, you all have been in a season of waiting yourself. Whether it's you're waiting to hear about a job, maybe you're waiting to hear about some test results back from the doctor, uh, maybe it's asking somebody out on a date and you're waiting on them to get back to you and you're just like, hmm. But whatever it is, we've all found ourselves in a season of waiting. Uh, For me, it's been the call to ministry. I had the, well, let me back up for a second. I first surrendered my life at the ripe old age of 26 to Jesus. And so that was close to eight years ago at this point. That was summer of 2016, and I was in Columbia at the time in school. And it wasn't too long after that that I had the opportunity to go on my first mission trip. And it was the spring of 2018, and we were in India. And I was with a group of guys that I've never met before, and we were doing something that I have very little experience in, and that is construction work. And we built a Bible college in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains for local pastors to come and receive training. And I'm sitting there doing this work, and it's over the course of 10 days. And I'm like, wow, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to do ministry work. And so I came home from that trip. I spoke to my local pastor at the time and told him I felt called to ministry. And he said, that's great. We actually have a team from our church going to Russia in two months, and I think you should be on that trip. I said, okay. Um, Let me pray about it. And then the Lord provided the funding to go on that trip. And so I went two months later um, to Russia. And it was while I was on that trip that I felt like the affirmation of being called to ministry was there. And so I came back, I talked to him, I said, yep, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so we began working together on uh, growing in pastoral ministry. I applied to seminary, was accepted, and started that. And so here we are six years later, still not in full-time ministry, and I still haven't finished my seminary degree. So I have been waiting for six years for this door to open up. And it's in these seasons of waiting that there's been pain. There's been wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? But what I've looked back and seen during these seasons of waiting is God constantly at work. 
I didn't see it at the time. I didn't understand it at the time. But he was nevertheless moving and working that entire time. And that's where we find the prophet Habakkuk this morning in our passage today. As we've already looked at in chapter 1, uh, we've seen Habakkuk cry out to God. And he's basically saying, God, I know who you are. I know your character. But I'm looking around at all the wickedness in the world. And quite frankly, things don't make a whole lot of sense. Sound familiar? Some of you sitting there wondering the very same things today. But while Habakkuk is waiting on God to act, we're going to see in our passage today that he's not sitting around doing nothing. Right? So when we find ourselves in a season of waiting, it doesn't mean that we are idle. We're going to see from today's passage, there's actually three ways in these first five verses that we are called to work in the waiting. And so that is the title of today's sermon, Working in the Waiting. And so if you'll join me now, we're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 together, and then we'll jump right in. So this is what the Word says. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays, an arrogant man is never at rest, he enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself, he collects all the peoples for himself. Let's pray. Father, again, I come before you just uh, grateful for this opportunity to proclaim your word and the message that you've laid on my heart. And Father, I just lift up these next few moments together as we dive into your text that uh, you would remove any distractions that are in our hearts and in our minds, or if there's any sin in our life that needs to be brought forth uh, to the forefront of our mind, that you would just do that so that we may repent. And Father, I just ask now that you would uh, move through your spirit in the hearts of your people, that we would leave out of this place growing closer to you, Lord, and more importantly, seeking to share our love for you with others. And so, Father, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in these first five verses, we see that there are three ways that we are called to work while we wait on God to act. And the first one I want to share with you this morning is that we are to watch for God. So let's look at verse 1. It says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. And if you remember from last week's sermon when Pastor Walter prayed on verses, or excuse me, preached on verses 12 through 17, we saw Habakkuk praying or complaining to God for a second time. He's starting to realize God's plan. He's seeing that God is going to use the Babylonians or the Chaldeans to come against the nation of Judah in judgment. And just for a historical context, uh, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, is under Assyrian rule. But that empire is starting to crumble. 
And there's a new world power on the scene in the form of Babylon. And by this point, Habakkuk, and I'm sure most of the people of Judah have heard about the Babylonians. And we're going to see that in the text. And what they've heard about these people is not good. And he's aware of the wickedness of the Babylonians, but he's also perplexed. Like, God, why would you use these people, the most wicked people on earth at this time, to judge your own people? That doesn't make any sense. But yet what Habakkuk says to God in verse 1, he says, I will, I'm going to stand at my guard post. I will watch to see what he will say to me. You see, Habakkuk is waiting for God to act and bring about justice for his people, but he's not sitting around doing nothing. He's being active while he is waiting on God. First, he's standing, and then he is watching. The Hebrew word here used for stand literally means to abide. And the word that we find for watch literally means to lean forward and peer into the distance. So what's Habakkuk saying here? He's saying that I will accept your word, Lord, and look or watch for you to act. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was, I was reading through the book and trying to figure out which passage I would like to, to preach, and it was actually verse 1 out of this chapter that just really stood out to me. And the reason it jumped out is because I can relate to this post or, or this passage with standing guard post. Um, I know I haven't had a chance to meet very many of you and share my story, but when I was 18 years old, I joined the Marines straight out of high school. And this was at the height of the war on terror. And I had the opportunity to go to Iraq first on my first deployment and then Afghanistan on my second deployment. And it was primarily in Afghanistan that I had the opportunity to stand a lot of, a lot of guard posts. Um, could have been late at night, could have been at dawn, could have been in the heat of the day. It didn't matter. I, any time of day we could be asked to stand post. And while on post, like Habakkuk is saying here, you are expected to remain vigilant, to look off into the distance, right? You are that first line of defense against your buddies. <clears throat> and so there's not supposed to be any distractions. You're not supposed to be sitting there just twiddling your thumbs. You are to be alert the whole time, right? And Habakkuk's saying the same thing. I will wait for you, God, and I'm going to be alert and watching the whole time. But you weren't just standing post by yourself. You always had something with you. That's your weapon. At no time were you ever without your weapon. It didn't matter if you were shaving your face in the morning. It didn't matter if you were eating chow. It didn't matter if you were working out, going potty, or going to sleep. Your weapon was on your body at all times. And church, it's got to be the same with us. We've got to have our weapons on us at all time while we wait for God. You might be thinking, what's our weapon? This right here. Hebrews 4 calls this the word of God sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? This is our weapon, the word of God. 
And so while we are waiting for God to act, we have to be in his word. We can see that's what Habakkuk's been doing. How does he know God's character? He studied his word. He has seen God on the pages of Scripture, and we've got to do the same thing. And it doesn't mean you just get up in the morning, you read your daily devotional or passage of Scripture, and then you just forget about it the rest of the day. We're called to dwell on it, to meditate on God's Word, to wrestle with it. You think back to Pastor Walter's sermon when he was speaking about Jacob, wrestling with God. We got to do the same thing, wrestle with it. Say, God, I don't understand what this means. Show me. Show me what this means. Help me to understand. And so if we're going to watch for God, we got to have our weapon on us. And you think about what a weapon does. It's to be used offensively and defensively. So offensively, we got to be reading God's promises in his word so that we can be expecting him to act. That's what Habakkuk is doing. He is expecting God to act because he has read in his word that he's going to act. He knows God is faithful. He knows he can trust him. And he knows that God is going to act. And so that means when we read these passages of Scripture, we pray them back to God. We say, God, I have seen this in your word. I know you are faithful and true. Now act. We are waiting for you to act, God. And so that's offensively. We also use it defensively to repel the attacks of the enemy. You think about when you're laying in bed late at night, that's when those thoughts like to creep into your mind, right? That's when everything that you've been distracted against throughout the day, you finally have to face it. And uh, that's especially relevant for me. Um, This week, I lost my job. And so at night, when I'm laying there, here come those thoughts of fear, anxiety, doubt, and uncertainty. God, I don't understand. God, what am I going to do next? The timing of this couldn't be worse. I have a new wife and a baby on the way. This doesn't make any sense. And I know you've all been there too. You're laying there at night, and it's those thoughts that start creeping into your head. God, I don't understand. I'm fearful of the future. It doesn't make any sense. But it's in those moments that those thoughts start creeping in, when the enemy is attacking you the hardest, that you repel his attacks by quoting Scripture back. But the only way you can do that is if you know it to begin with. It has to be stored up in your heart. And it's in those moments that, yes, that fear is real. That anxiety is real. Those doubts are real. But you know what else is real? The God in whom we serve. And it's in those moments that you feel peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul writes about in Philippians. doesn't make any sense. Your life, by all accounts, seems to be in a mess. And yet, you have hope. You have peace you know that based on what you have read in Scripture, that you can trust in God. 
And so that's how we are to watch for God, which leads me to our second point. We are to wait for God. Let's look at verses two through four together. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. So Habakkuk's standing on post. He's waiting on God to act and speak, and boom, here he goes. God answers Habakkuk. And God tells him in verses 2 and 3, he says, write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. So Habakkuk, he receives this vision from God, but it's not just for Habakkuk. God tells him, write it down, clearly, so one may easily read it. And he's to write it down clearly so that anyone who reads it can understand what God is showing Habakkuk here. And let's look at this vision. We see it's not for the immediate time, but for a future time. And what the vision is depicting is the end time. It's meant to be preserved for future generations because God instructs them, write it down on tablets. Now, I don't know the last time you guys have been chiseling away on a stone tablet, but you can't just erase it. That's about as close to permanent as it gets. It's preserved for future generations. Then the Lord declares the truthfulness of the vision and that it does not lie. So we must ask ourselves, why is the Lord going to such great lengths in describing this vision to Habakkuk? And I think the vision is found, or excuse me, the answer to that is found in the command that he gives him towards the end of verse 3. When God tells him, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Ultimately, what God is doing here is showing Habakkuk that he can trust God while he waits. Now, I didn't realize this until I started preparing this sermon, but by all accounts, most people agree that Habakkuk did not live to see this vision fulfilled, that he did not live to see the Babylonians actually come into Judah, invade, be successful, and haul everybody off to Babylon. Like, he died before that happened. And uh, by all accounts, we see that he is a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, just to put it in perspective. And so, just because he didn't get to see this played out, there's something profound that happens here in verse 4 when God says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. It seems like it's just kind of sandwiched in here, right? God is describing 
these wicked Babylonians that he's getting ready to use against Judah, and then all of a sudden, but the righteous one will live by his faith. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. We see Paul quotes it twice, first in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, then in Galatians 3, verse 11, and then again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And what God is showing Habakkuk here is there is two responses to the Word of God. The first part of verse 4, God describes the Babylonians. He says, these people have an inflated ego, and they're without integrity. And we'll get more into that when we jump into verse 5. But ultimately, they're going to reject God and his word. So there's the first group of people. But notice the second one that God describes in this verse. They're righteous, and they live by faith. You see, Habakkuk was able to wait for God because he trusted in God and everything that he said to him. Ultimately, he had faith. We are at the end of October, so Tuesday. Some of you know it's Halloween, right? It's a day that a lot of people get dressed up and go trick-or-treating. But for us in the Protestant church, it's also a big day. It's Reformation Day. and it's the day in which we celebrate the German monk, Martin Luther, saying the righteous must live by faith. But before that, he was a Catholic monk in Germany. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of Martin Luther, don't worry, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. So Luther, being a good Catholic monk, went to Rome in the year 1510. And he's going to Rome because he wants to have a religious experience. Ultimately, he's uncertain about his salvation, and he's hoping that God's going to do something while he's in Rome. And he did. And so he gets to Rome, and he goes to what is called the Scala Sancta, which is Latin for holy stairs. And it is believed that these stairs, which are 28 in number, made out of white marble, now encased in wood to preserve them, are the very stairs that Christ walked when he left Pilate's quarters on the way to the cross. And so the Catholic Church brought him back from Jerusalem, had him in Rome, and right next door to these steps is a church that is built on ground that is believed to come from Calvary. And so at this time, the Pope was teaching that if you're a good Catholic, you're going to climb these stairs, and once you get to the top of these stairs, I'm going to give you an indulgence. And what an indulgence is, is something that you could buy to get somebody out of purgatory. And so that's what Martin Luther's doing. He's in Rome, and he is going to climb these stairs. And the rule was, you had to climb them on your knees. And every step you go up, you have to quote, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And once you get to the top, you get your indulgence. And so Martin Luther's doing this in the hopes of getting his grandfather out of purgatory. And while he's climbing up these stairs... And you can imagine climbing marble on your knees, how wonderful that must have felt. Something profound happened to him that changed his life and church history forever. As he is climbing on his knees, he hears a voice as clear as day in his heart that says, 
the righteous shall live by faith. He looks around. Nobody's talking to him. And he begins to mull over what this means because that's not what's being taught in the church at this time. And he gets up, walks back to Germany, and I'd love to tell you that he lived happily ever after. But if you know his story, that is not the case. Because he is proclaiming the righteous shall live by faith, he endured all sorts of attacks at the hands of the enemy until the end of his life. But he was able to endure that because he trusted in God. And it was the God that he read on the pages of Scripture that he said, that's who I place my faith in. And so we've got to ask ourselves that same question today, church, while we are waiting. Do I trust in God and what he has said? Because while it's not explicitly shown in this scripture, I believe ultimately what we see here is Habakkuk's submission to God. He's not arguing with God over this vision. He's not debating what he has seen. He is not saying, God, this doesn't make any sense. He submits to God's will. Because ultimately he recognizes he's not in control. God is. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're wrestling with God. Maybe you're in the middle of a season where you're saying, God, this doesn't make any sense, and you're attempting to control the outcome. You're attempting to manipulate things in your favor, and you just need to say, you know what, God? I'm not in control. You are, and I'm going to trust you. And maybe it's not you waiting on God to act. What if he's the one waiting on you to act? waiting on you to submit and say, your will be done, not mine. And friends, let me tell you, once you do that, that's when life gets good. It doesn't get easy, but it gets good. And once you do that, you can be his ambassador, which leads us to our third and final point. We are called to warn for God. Let's look at verses four and five again. Look, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays, an arrogant man is never at rest, he enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself, he collects all the peoples for himself." And so look at the, the links that God is going to here to describe the Babylonians that he's bringing against Judah, right? He says, he's got inflated ego, so they're prideful. They're without integrity, so they're dishonest. A drunkard, arrogant, never happy, never satisfied, greedy. This is who God is using to come against his very own people in Judah, so just put yourself in Habakkuk's sandals for a moment and think, while you're receiving this vision from God, you're probably sitting there thinking, really? This is who you're using? Are we not your people, God? Why are you going to use the most wicked people on earth to judge us? That doesn't make any sense. 
That's your plan? And if we're being honest, we do the exact same thing, right? We look around, we see everything going on in the world, and we go, really, God? That's your plan? Or how much longer, God, until you act? But here's the reality. Just because God is bringing judgment against his people, it doesn't make them any less his people. He's bringing judgment against his people because he holds them to a higher standard. And they haven't been living up to that standard. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 states, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. So we see that things are not looking good, and we know from these verses it's not about to get any better. In fact, it's going to get much worse. But the reason God has disciplined his people here is ultimately because they're not glorifying him. In many ways, the people of Judah are acting no different than the people of Babylon. The only difference is God has set his people apart for his glory, and he will be glorified. And so what we see in these verses is ultimately an act of mercy. You say, wait a second, how do you get mercy out of that? It's all ultimately a warning for his people to repent. That's the hope here, is that his people would repent, but if you know the story, that's not what happened. They don't repent. Babylon comes in and hauls them all off to Babylon. But God still gets the glory. You see, the wicked and arrogant leader that God is describing in verses 4 and 5, you know who that is? Nebuchadnezzar. And if you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, You know that he's the most powerful ruler of his day. He is successful in all his endeavors. But then something happens. Nebuchadnezzar goes insane. And he goes and he lives in a field, grazing like an ox for seven years. And you know what happens at the end of that seven years? God redeems him. God restores him. And ultimately, according to Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar glorifies God. And so once you zoom out for a second, you see that, yeah, there's judgment coming against God's people, that things are not great, but ultimately it's leading to God's glory because through Israel's disobedience, Nebuchadnezzar places his faith in God. That God is still saving people throughout all of this uncertainty. He doesn't stop being God. He doesn't stop saving people. That through his people's disobedience, he brings salvation to the king of Babylon and who knows how many other Babylonians. And so once you realize that, it's like, huh, God, I guess you didn't know what you were doing this whole time. It doesn't make any sense on the surface. 
And if you think that part of his plan is crazy, fast forward 600 years later, after all of this, when a baby is born to a virgin, that doesn't make any sense on its own, but it gets better, bear with me. This baby grows up and he lives a perfect life and his name is Jesus. And this Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God and the repentance of sin for three years on this earth. And at the end of those three years, you know what happens? They kill him. Never did anything wrong, never sinned. And yet, they charged him with all of humanity's crimes. They put the sin of the world on this sinless man. That don't make any sense. And yet, it was the plan of God all along. Because when Jesus was nailed to a cross, bearing the penalty for all humanity, and was put to death, buried in a grave, he walked out three days later, proving that he is not only man, but also God. Doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's been God's plan all along. And the best part is, is that this God-man, Jesus Christ, is coming back for his church again. That's not the end of the story. And so just how Habakkuk was given this vision to warn others of the coming judgment, we're called to do the same, church. All around us, right outside these walls, are people that are far from God, and if they die today, are destined to a life apart from him for all eternity in a place called hell. That's the reality. And we, the church, are called to take the gospel to these people so that they too can enjoy the salvation that you and I have by placing our faith in Jesus. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, how do you do that? Warn for God. Matthew 25 says it. When Jesus comes back, just how Nebuchadnezzar here in verse 5, he gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the people for himself. Christ is going to do that when he comes back, as he states in Matthew 25. And he's going to separate his people, the sheep, from the goats, those who reject him. Friend, you don't want to be a goat. You want to be a sheep. So we must warn for God. And we do that by living on mission for him. We do that by viewing every day as an opportunity to share the gospel. We view it as every day could be the very day that Christ himself returns. We have intentional conversations with people. We seek people out. We engage the lost. We warn for God. And so now... Uh, as we close our time together, I want to ask you to be honest with yourselves. This is some self-examination time. First question is, are you watching, waiting, and warning for God? And if not, here's your opportunity to settle that with the Lord, right? Maybe you need to repent of some things. Maybe you need to ask God, hey, how can I be more intentional in warning for you? How am I supposed to spend my time here on this earth for you, Lord? 
and you don't have to come forward. You can do that right where you're sitting, but all it takes is a moment of just being real with the Lord and saying, God, I haven't held up my end of the deal, and I'm sorry. I want you to use me this week, this very week. I want you to use me, Lord. I want you to place me where you want me so that I can tell others about what you've done for me. And maybe it's your first time here today. Maybe you're checking out Christianity and you're saying, I don't understand all this, but I want to know more. I'm going to be right down here. And Pastor Brian, Pastor Walter would love nothing more than to speak with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. If that's something you're interested in today, we would love to talk to you about that. But wherever you're at, however the Lord is leading you this morning, I want you to respond in obedience. So before we go to uh, the Lord in this final song, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll enter into a time of song. Father, I thank you for this day. Uh, This is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is always moving, always acting in this world. While we may not always see it, while we may not always understand it, it does not change who you are. You are the great I am. You change not. And Lord, I just ask that as we leave out of here today, that we would have a burning desire in our heart to grow closer to you, to dive into your word, and to share your wonderful love with those who don't know it yet. And so, Father, I pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.